0: Are you looking to grow your business and stay resilient? Look no further than FM Global. With over 180 years of scientific research and engineering
1: expertise, we bring innovative solutions to ensure your commercial property today so you can prosper tomorrow.
0: Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear. Welcome to the Classic Album Club podcast. In this episode, we revisit Manic Street Preachers' powerful and emotive 1996 album, Everything Must Go. Any song that we released that would represent a new album had to be amazing.
1: Um, We didn't even say that to each other. It was a very tacit understanding. But we just knew the stakes was high because uh, people would be looking to see if... We were a much lesser band without Richie.
0: We'll be hearing from lead singer and guitarist James Dean Bradfield about their collaboration with producer Mike Hedges, and the change in routine for recording the new album. I loved every part of being in the studio. Mike was very much
1: an old school producer who believed in creating an environment and just actually just everybody just really getting on. And you knew that from 10 till six in the day, you know, you had a good eight hours of recording and nothing else.
0: First, let's hear James describe the impact that the disappearance of Richie Edwards, the band's rhythm guitarist, co writer, and creative center point, had on the future of Manic Street Preachers. You can't really describe how everything must go came about um, without describing the end of the Holy
1: Bible, the third album, and subsequently, you know, Richie's disappearance. Um, so we'd come to the, the end of the Holy Bible campaign. Yeah, you know, Richie had been quite troubled up in, um, through that campaign and in the recording of the Holy Bible. And we'd said to him, look, you know, you don't have to come out on the road with us anymore. Perhaps we actually even said, you know, the band doesn't have to continue. We can we can just try and do something else or just change name and just become more of a studio entity. We were aware that the road was quite a, a difficult place for somebody uh, to put themselves in once they'd been through certain things, I suppose. It's the best way of putting it. And uh, he had turned all those things down and uh, so he said, no, I want to carry on, you know, especially with the music and I've got some lyrics and, you know, let's start writing for the next record. So we had um, gone to a place in Surrey called The House in the Woods, which was a demo, a little demo studio, which we'd been to before for the first album. And that was a lovely... what you would call a safe environment for somebody such as richie who had been through something you know a few traumas and we we, we did some demos there some of the songs that we did th- did there ended up on everything must go songs like small black flowers that grow in the sky further away was done there no surface or feeling was done there but also we'd written some songs there which we didn't do demos of songs like elvis impersonator black bull pier and kevin carter were written but they hadn't we we, we ran out of time to do demos of them after that session, we drove back to the MC Hotel in Bayswater Road. And myself and Richie were supposed to go to America to do a promo tour for the Holy Bible because we were going to do an American American leg of the tour for the Holy Bible. And um, and then that was the night that he went missing. So, you know, the start of Everything Must Go was mired in Richie disappearing. There's no way around it. You know, that is the truth. Um, so that was—it was quite strange to look back in it and know that the, the start of the demoing process for Everything Must Go was was really amidst this this massive uh, thing that that was happening to us. Uh, I suppose we got a jump eight months on from from that point, where we'd sat we'd, we'd sat round you know in each other's houses and and in our management's office and in rehearsal rooms, not quite knowing. What our situation was, whether Richie was ever going to come back. And we didn't know whether we, whether we were still a band without him. You know, it really was, everything was so nebulous and troubled, you know. So it's it's a very, very weird atmosphere. After about five months, I think, we, we decided that we, the only thing we could do was write some songs and see how we felt. And as soon as you make a decision like that, you know that the stakes are very, very high. Because you know that amidst Richie's absence and his disappearance there are so many questions but also that if you put yourself back into the fray as a band you're still going to be judged on the music you release so everything felt quite delicate everything felt quite just very confused so the one thing that we did know was that any song that we released that would represent a new album had to be amazing Um, we didn't even say that to each other, it was a very tacit understanding, but we just knew the stakes was high because uh, people would be looking to see if we were a much lesser band without Richie, but we just wanted to prove that undoubtedly we we would be a different band, but we would still be amazing. That's the only way I could put it really. We had written some songs, Design for Life being one of them, and we invited Mike Hedges to Cardiff to watch us rehearse. And that was interesting because we had asked Mike Hedges to produce the Holy Bible um, because he'd produced some of my favorite records ever. He'd produced Story of the Blues by uh, War. He'd produced a lot of Banshee stuff, um, a lot of Kiwa stuff, Associates, you know, just so many records, which I loved. And um, he had sent us a reply at the start of the Holy Bible saying, thanks for the inquiry. I like you, uh, but I can't. I'm really busy, um, but please ask me again. And that was quite strange because producers usually don't get an answer from them. You get an answer from their manager saying, no, I'm not interested. Or they just don't answer at all. And uh, he had sent back something quite personal and saying, sorry, I can't do it this time, but please, I want to work with you. So that was cool. So when we came around to doing everything with Moscow, we thought, let's try Mike again. You know, he, he, had, he had been very open to working with us. He came to Cardiff. Uh, we played him Design for Life once. Then he asked to hear it again. He obviously loved it the first time and he said well he said I don't care if I don't do an album with you but as long as I get to produce that song that's all I want to do he said of course I want to do an album with you but I really want to produce that song and that was a really pivotal important moment because we needed confidence we were you know we were lacking confidence we were lacking identity we were lacking certainty in in any kind of way and for him to say that and for somebody that we admired so much, to say that was a massive shot on the arm for us. We kind of quickly played him some other songs, Kevin Carter included. Then Nick and Sean went home and I took him out to a food pubs in Cardiff and we got hammered. I mean, we didn't get hammered, we got panelled. Um, he had never drunk um, this Welsh beer called Brains before. And um yeah, we were really I mean it was it was big, big time drunk. And Mike is six foot seven and I'm five foot <clears throat> Uh, five-ish <laughs> kind of thing and so it was quite a strange sight seeing me leading back to the train station it looked like Danny DeVito and Arnie Swadgenigger in Twins, yeah. you know and uh, so that was a good start, it really was a good start and then uh, a month later we find ourselves in France doing our first session with him uh, Design for Life in Kevin Carter and I don't know whether it was serendipity I don't know whether it was we were, we were dealt some good fate after what we had been through but everything just clicked straight away. Design for Life We and Kevin Carter, we came back and they were a mixed, but already they sounded amazing. And I remember playing them to Rob Stringer in his car and he was just, he was kind of amazed. Um, he was just like, that's just, we've got, you know, the first track you recorded and you've got the first single. By then we started doubting ourselves, but he was always very, very definite Rob Stringer. He said, you've kind of got the single it's, it's the best thing you've done since motorcycle perhaps it's even better so that's how we started it felt like a relief to to actually have things click into place with such ease after obviously richie being a had been in a bad place at the start of the holy bible and then he disappeared and you know i don't want to go over all that again mm-hmm. it's obvious what it is and to have everything click into place for once which felt like we'd been in a bad place for two years really and um, to have all that click a place, you know, Mike Hedges, the studio in France being an amazing environment, and the writing, you know. I mean, um, only yesterday I was, uh, did, uh, before I did this interview, Design 5 came on the radio, and the only thing I could concentrate on was the lyric. Um, I don't think there are many examples in, in British rock, pop, history, where every line of the song means something, and you don't hear that line in any other song. The only thing I could come up with was eating rifles by the jam or going underground, where every line counts for something. Perhaps God Save the Queen, Pistols. Um, You know, it's kind of every line in that song, library gave us power, work came and made us free. What price now for a shallow piece of dignity? I wish I had a bottle, right here in my dirty face, to show the scars from where I came. You know, we don't want to get drunk, We just talk about love and we are not allowed to spend because we are told this is the end. It talks about boom and bust economy. It talks about the gap between the haves and the have-nots where the haves kind of don't give a damn about tax. But, you know, the have-nots are constantly preached to about not spending above their means where there's one law for the have-nots and then there's no laws, you know, for the haves. You know, just for that, just to be covered in one line and we are not allowed to spend because we are told that this is the end. So concise. So when I heard it yesterday, I was just thinking, that's just an amazing lyric from Nick. It's absolutely pinpoint every line. Sometimes I will edit some of the lyrics down, but Nick had done that job for himself on this record. Um, uh, Like a song like Australia, which is a song about escapism. Um, It's a song about just wanting to escape everything. You know, it's very concise. Uh, Design for Life is very concise. Everything must go, you know, a cathartic lyric. Trying to jettison, you know, experience for new experience is a very concise lyric, too. And Nick had pretty much done that on the page himself. I didn't really have to do anything. The only editing process I had to do was put two lyrics together to make Design for Life, but both the lyrics were about the same thing anyway. And to sing those, those lyrics, stuff like Everything Must Go, Design for Life, Australia, it, it is physically easier which I don't necessarily want. I love the challenge of the verboseness of some of wrote. I'd love singing the songs in the Holy Bible because it's it's almost like a sporting challenge. It's very physical and it's very confrontational. You feel confronted by the lyric, and so it makes you f- sing a different way. Um, but undoubtedly, I think a lot of the commercial success may be down to the production, may be down to the tunes, but a lot of it is down to next lyrics because it gave birth to being able to... Produce things in a, in a more glossy way, in a more aesthetically commercial way, I suppose, and it gave everything a chance to breathe, including
0: myself. It was clear that this new album was going to be different to anything that the Manics had done before. This was typified by the powerful opening track, Elvis impersonator, Blackpool Pier. It was it was really strange to hear people around us starting to to describe things in
1: different terms. Um, I remember when we did the initial recording, and it was very rough and unmixed. I remember uh, Rob Stringer, Martin Hall, our manager, and Mike Hedges all saying that it reminded them of Queen a bit, <laughs> very early Queen, which I found confusing. But people always said that I had a touch of the Mercury's in my vocal, kind of thing. Um, but that was quite that was quite interesting that people saw that. Um, and I put the tag on the on, on at the start, uh, at the end, uh, with the American trilogy, uh, a little passage at the end because it seemed like an obvious thing to do, uh, to have this image of a faux version of Elvis amongst very British, dare I say, English setting, and it questions the whole validity of authenticity and what authenticity means in in the modern era. I just thought it would be nice to have a part of the ghost-like image of American trilogy at the end of it, which segues into Design for Life. So I heard that, and I I heard what the lyric was trying to do, yeah, you know, it, it questions what authenticity is. So I wanted to make the music quite real, yeah, to counter that. But originally, when I I played this song to Richie once on the acoustic guitar, in the kitchen at a house in the woods, I envisaged it being like Wire, a post punk group from uh, from uh, from the late seventies and eighties that was on the Harvest label. For any train spotters out there, I pictured this song being like uh, "Once You Ask You" by Wire, which is a "doom doo So it should have been. My original version was uh, 20 foot high on Blackpool Promenade and it was very breakneck speed post-punk kind of song. And then I remember taking that into the rehearsal room with Nick and Sean and them saying, no, it doesn't go like that. It goes, it's got to be a bit more like some of the other songs we recorded. So I was quickly corrected by Nick and Sean and it, it grew into this thing that has a touch of old school 70s rock about it, I suppose, really. The lyrics are old school Richie lyrics, you know, 20 foot high on Blackpool Promenade, fake royalty, second hand sequin facade. It is very prescient. I think, I think the, the secret to a lyric like that is, is that amongst it all, Richie is even asking the question, does authenticity even matter? That was always the sting in the tail with a Richie lyric. It wouldn't just be about the one thing, there would be the question there too.
0: Richie Edwards continued to be a guiding influence on the album and the track Small Black Flowers That Grow in the Sky demonstrates the emotive power of his lyric writing.
1: I know the documentary. It's buried in my mind. I know the documentary that it was based upon, that Richie had watched, but I can't remember what it was called. I remember him telling me about it. Anyway, I remember him giving me this lyric and we had done the demo. When I read the lyric, I wanted it to be like a... I think it's... This a Rolling Stones song called The Spider and the Fly. Um, I wanted it to be quite a skeletal kind of acoustic experience. I remember all of us just loving this song, and we didn't really want to change it um, when we went on to master it that much. We just added the harp to it. And uh, I remember myself and Richie driving back to the MC Hotel after the House in the Woods session, because Nick and Sean went back to Wales. Me and Richie went to the MC Hotel. And it was almost like a scene from a film. Uh, We pulled into the underground car park, um, in his Vauxhall Astra. Oh, the glamour. I remember that song finishing as we parked and uh, it just stopped and he went, that's my favourite song we've done so far. So I know that you love that song, which is quite, does mean something. This song reminded me of um, of a book I'd read by either Osumai Dazai or Kobo Abe, two Japanese authors. I can't remember which one it is. And the book is called uh, uh, The Lady of the Sands or The Women, Woman of the Dunes. There are two different titles, and uh, it reminded me of uh, that film is about how uh, this woman is captured in in a deep sand dune, and she's analysed and used by the village, and it's just a really dark film, but it's all black and white Japanese film. And this lyric kind of evoked that for me, Uh, so I said that to Richie, and he kind of looked into the book a bit, and he went, "Yeah, that's that's a good." Perhaps he was just humouring me, but he said, "That's a good, that's a good, you know, touchstone for it." So anyway, um yeah, Richie really liked this song and then when we went to record it in France, Mike agreed he didn't want to do much to it. He just wanted the vocal to be a lot better because Mike was always really focused on vocals. And um he wanted to put a harp on it. Mike in his Mike's got a very grand style sometimes, whilst being very earthy, so it's a good mixture. And um he said, Oh I know I know a harp player, she um she's a Frank Sinatra's harpist. I was like, Oh wow, well, yeah. If I can meet, you know, the lady that's played Summer Wind, which is one of my favourite songs by Frank Sinatra, then, you know, yeah, that's that's great for me. So
0: he got um Frank Sinatra's harpist to play in it and he just finished it off, he was beautiful. Another major song on the album, Kevin Carter, was rooted in Richie's creative explorations. He based the lyrics around the tragic story of the photographer of the same name. Richie had, had investigated the story about Kevin Carter that had taken a, a, a famous photograph
1: a child dying and a, and a vulture waiting right behind it which you can't get away from the darkness of that it's just unfathomably bleak, grim and just tragic and um, I think uh, Kevin Carter had, had won a prize yeah, a Pulitzer Prize, nominated, won and this was and part of, and work that he'd done like that was was the reason why he'd won that prize and subsequently he'd become very troubled and very conflicted about the whole thing and uh, he committed suicide. So, yeah, not a terrible story, really. I think we've always loved that thing of just not writing about who we love or love song. Or I think what compels us to write songs is sometimes other people's inspiration, sometimes other people's misery, no doubt. And it t- at least that takes you out of yourself. It takes you out of the arena of writing something which is ego-driven. Uh, we wrote this song. All the references in the lyric, stuff like Bang Bang Club, is what uh, him and a group of photographers had called this called themselves because they were taking photographs in such arenas of intense conflict and stuff. So all the references in there are from Kevin Carter himself, you know. And uh, and it was for Richie. It's, very, it's a very concise lyric. Very concise. I think it's easier to write this stuff when you're younger because you do tend to approach it feeling a little more invincible you feel as if you can do anything whereas if you try to do stuff like this when you're older you question everything and you question the, the validity of, of just turning it into music even well when you're young you just you just face things face on you know you just go into them face on you charge into it so um, yeah I'm glad we try to do all these things when we we're younger because it's, it's, it's you question things as you get older I mean Kevin Carr was a hit it's bizarre you know it was a proper hit kind of thing so yeah it's, um, it's quite strange
0: Everything Must Go was proving to be a complex and deeply emotional album that encompassed feelings of distance and isolation, as well as facing up to the disenfranchisement of the working class. Coming up in this episode of Classic Album Club...
1: First time we played Design for Life was supporting Stone Roses at Wembley Arena quite strange I couldn't quite tell whether people connected with that song or not I couldn't tell whether we connected with it so suddenly it would come from the singer recording it and then taking it on stage in front of a Stone Roses crowd didn't quite know I didn't quite know where we were everything must go ironically managed to kind of come into existence and be accepted because Richard was still part of the record lyrically Undoubtedly, Richie's influence is still born upon the record because his, inf- his lyrics have influenced quite a lot of the music there. We're absolutely cursed. And we should have round about seven number one albums now. And we've always been pipped to the post by something gigantic. I can't be magnanimous in Defeats or something like that. I just can't. Sorry, I'm a bitter person. And I'm not going to go through the list. And everything we score scored was kept off number one as well. And Design for Life was kept off number one.
2: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
0: Mike Hedges fully backed the material that the band was producing throughout this period and had developed a close working relationship with them too. This was down to the disciplined and structured recording schedule that he put in place. Up until then, I'd
1: love, I loved every part of being in the studio, but I knew that at six o'clock it would just be me and the producer and I'd go on till two in the morning. Mike... Structure things in a bit of a different way. We're at a place called Chateau Rougemont in Domfront, which is in Normandy, a very classic, kind of like, you know, French rambling uh, chateau. We're slightly faded grandeur about it. Mike would demand that we started around about 10 in the morning, which usually I started about midday and I'd go on until two in the morning. He said that we had to start at 10 in the morning and then we would finish just before dinner. So when the session started, dinner would start around about eight. And that was okay. Then dinner start getting pushed forward to around about six. Dinner would be enormous, you know. There would be three bean soup, super of pisto. There would be just beef bourguignon. There would just be, you know, just vin, There would just be flans. There would just be everything, you know. Um, meats, just like, you know, cured fish. Nick really, this is where Nick hit his wine phase. He really got into wine. Um, and there would just be beautiful bread and hams and cheese in the fridge. I never recovered from it. I've been a chunky Labrador ever since, you know. And uh, yeah, you would work till, you start at 10 and then you'd finish at, at it's, suddenly dinner would be at six and you would be so, you'd have such post-meal slump, slump that you'd immediately have a sleep, you'd wake up, it'd be nine and then you'd go to the pub or I would go to the pub and Nick and Sean would stay in the house, Sean would come out now and again. So in the end it worked out because we were starting earlier and you knew that from 10 till six in the day, you know, you had a good eight hours of recording and nothing else.
0: The song "Australia" sounds bright and powerful, but it tackles feelings of being alone and escapism. The basis Nicky Wire was experiencing in the early nineties. Nick had uh, had a few health health issues as
1: well. His liver wasn't uh, working the way it should, so he'd go into these slumps where he would just have to just fall asleep for five hours. You know, so he, he was he was quite ill for a, for a short period there. And I think we'd come out the other end of, obviously, Richie's disappearance. And Nick had had this thing, which was undiagnosed. And he'd written me, I'd written this lyric, and he said, This is just a song about escape. It's just me about just, it's my life on Mars. You know, I'm just, you know, if I think about escape in some way, it's always to Australia. I don't know why. It's a very simple lyric. I think shortly after that, he said, Oh, I read this really good Paul McCartney and John Lennon quote where they said, "Uh, Should we do a swimming pool song? And what they meant by that was, yeah, we've had a couple of big songs, but let's write something really big. Let's write something where we can buy another mansion with a swimming pool or something. And um, he said, I said, well, what would our version of that be? I think we came up with let's write a uh, kind of goals of the month song. <laughs> we could write something which could constantly be played behind uh, sporting montages or clips or goal roundups. And that's quite a really uh, shallow way of approaching something but I like the idea of just approaching something that just trying to create this, like, this shiny musical moment which could just get played in sportman programs and stuff. And I like the idea of just... The lyric was about escapism, very simple, and I like the idea of just approaching the tune from a very simple point of view, something that was just shiny and that just summoned, summed up like what's, what's happened this week in sport kind of thing. And it worked. It got used on the Nation, uh, Nationwide, uh, Nationwide League's Goal Roundup for about four years which was, that was that really made me happy. It was nice to actually approach something in a, in a very much more shallow, simple way. And, it, and to have it work was great. Australia ne- nearly didn't make it. Um, we had done a version of Australia with Stephen Haig, who produced, you know, Regret by New Order. And it's it, not by anybody's fault. Sometimes it just doesn't work out, which just goes to show the chemistry between you and a, and a producer is can be nearly as important as the chemistry between a band, you know? And then Stephen Egg was brilliant and he was great to us and he'd done some amazing records, but it didn't work out with us. So we re-recorded a version with Mike Hedges and again, it didn't feel brilliant. And it was about, it was just about not to make the record and we gave it to Dave Erringer uh, to mix. We'd, we'd done the second album with and we recorded both our number ones with subsequently. Um, he mixed it and it turned out all right. And that was a great relief, it was. Girl I Want to Be Girl was a really uh good amalgam between Nick and Richie as where they wrote lyrics together for this one or Nick added lyrics to it later and and it needed it because it was a bit of a mess but we knew something was there and it, you know, the, I think the lyric is, is loosely based on uh, Sylvia Plath or the cult of Sylvia Plath you know we thought yeah this is this could be our ABBA lyric <laughs> because there were lines in there which just jumped up from the page which just seemed quite ABBA-esque um, which is just so misguided from us Myself, Nick and Sean knew that we loved the idea of this song and we just needed Nick to really add lots to it. So it's a very much a 50-50 experience lyrically between Nick and Richie. And uh, yes, important. Um, a lot of people have always said that this is one of their favourite songs off the record. And again, this is the one surviving bit from the Stephen Haig session. Uh, we did this song with Stephen Haig. We took it away and we knew that the bedrock of what he had done was good, but we had to work on it. Uh, with my Edges as well. So, um, yeah, and in a roundabout way, this one got finished. We were aware of a section of our crowd um, that were very much in thrall to the Holy Bible. It's very strange, you know, um, the first album was kind of big, you know, especially with motorcycle emptiness. Second album took that inevitable second album dip. Um, but then the third album sold less than the second and the first album. But, in a strange way, we seemed bigger. It seemed like we were the biggest cult band in Britain because our gigs were selling out and and suddenly our audience were turning up en masse, dressed in this military regalia and sailors' outfits and stuff and everything, you know all the stuff that we were wearing. So we were aware that kind of like you know a lot of our crowd were very, very strictly adherent to what the Man of Street pictures was about. And that was the Holy Bible. Suddenly this became the touchstone for what the Manic should be. So when we came to release uh, Design for Life and Everything Must Go, we were aware of this section of the crowd that only wanted to see the Holy Bible version of, the man, of Manic Street Preachers or wanted to see what Richie represented. And we didn't know how they were going to react to songs like Design for Life, Kevin Carter, Everything Must Go. So that's touched upon in the lyric, you know, we just hope that you forgive us. Because uh, everything must go, we were aware that there was going to be, there could be a disconnect between what people thought was our defining moment, the Holy Bible, and this. Everything must go. Ironically, managed to kind of come into existence and be accepted because Richie was still part of the record lyrically, you know. And so, uh, my biggest influence in the group is is the lyrics that are put in front of me. So at the start, it was. It was just Nick giving me the lyrics. Then very quickly it became Nick and Richie giving me lyrics. And then it was just Nick again. Um, and no matter in what form, whether it be from day one or to the very first song we wrote for Everything Must Go, the biggest influence for me in the group is the lyrics that are put in front of me, whether it be from Nick or Richie. And, um, and undoubtedly Richie's influence is still born upon the record because his, inf- his lyrics have influenced quite a lot of the music there.
0: From early in the development of their hit song, A Design for Life, James had identified the expansive, richly layered sound he wanted to achieve. When we wrote Design for Life, it pretty much came
1: as it was recorded, minus the strings. It was all formed from verse, bridge to chorus. Uh, it was Nick's idea just, just to have the, in- just the instrumental section in the middle where there were no words and they just a verse repeated but with the strings cascading down. You know, that song was envisaged without any producer touching it. And then, you know, Mike just made, made it sound better. And we knew he could do that actually because he just produced Yes by McCalmont Butler. So that was a bit of serendipity that he'd produce something which we wanted one of our songs to sound like. We would definitely go in that direction of of just wanting to breathe, of wanting to perhaps be able to fly from the orbit of super reality. You know, we wanted, not necessarily in the lyrics, but we wanted to be, there to be some kind of escapism in the lyrics. where We just wanted to be uplifted, I suppose, by our own music, rather than be confronted by the reality of what we created. <laughs> it's really simple.
0: So it would have happened anyway, but I think Mike was undoubtedly the perfect choice for it. Although creativity was freely flowing and the band was clicking in the studio, James still had doubts about how the new material would be received live. The first time we played Design for Life was uh,
1: supporting Stone Roses at Wembley Arena. That was strange. I remember Nick wore a Cardiff Red Devils ice hockey shirt on stage, which was bizarre in itself. I wore some nondescript, kind of like Mannix CNA top, um, and, yeah, it was quite strange. I couldn't quite tell whether people connected with that song or not. I couldn't tell whether we connected with it. So suddenly we'd come from this of recording it and then taking it on stage in front of a Stone Roses crowd. I didn't quite know. I didn't quite know where we were. Then the next gig we did after that, I think, was... We did a warm-up gig for supporting Oasis at Main Road at the Hacienda the night before. And Nick pretty much had a bit of an emotional breakdown that night. It just hit home, let Richie not be in there. And then we played <laughs> the Main Road gig, and, and after the thing of supporting Stone Roses and doing the Hacienda Warmer gig, we stepped on stage at Main Road to support Oasis, and it did click with the audience. Again, that was another moment of relief. It was just like, you know, there were lads there, you know, lots of lads, you know, kitted out in Man City tops. You know, it, it was massive at the time. Two nights at Main Road, you know, that was big. And then it got bigger, obviously, but suddenly you're watching these lads and they're proper football lads good boys you know but they were like oh yeah i have you heard this one it's good yeah it's a good song this yeah don't mind this and then they listen to Motorcycle Emptiness and then they listen to us play From Despair Away. and you realise that you know Design for Life had grabbed everybody's attention so again it was up and down up and down up and down a c- couple of weeks before I wasn't quite sure whether Design for Life was going to do it and then I, main road I was like yeah it will do it definitely we should have round about seven number one albums now and we've always been picked to the post by something gigantic or improbably big <laughs> like you know the greatest showman on this record keeping us off number one when we would have been number one every other week except for that i can't be magnanimous in defeats or something like that i just can't sorry i'm a bitter person and everything we score was kept off number one as well and design for life was kept off number one I kind of accept Design for Life being kept off number one because it was kept off number one by genius pop record. If you're kept off number one by something which you respect, that's that makes, makes it easier uh, to lose. But being number one does matter. And we've missed out on so many number one records now just by something just flourishing and just coming from the ground up and beating us, pipping us at the post and it happened with design for life and it's weird because design for life sold so many records you know as a single um and uh and it hung around in the charts for ages but it was never number one and everything must go was never number one but we got the brit brit award was- for best album you know and it obviously it sold 1.1.3 1. million in britain alone just just in britain so yeah those are the days where when you had success commercial success across the counter money changing hands success things just stayed around in the charts forever, you know, and there was a certain longevity to that. People always equate being uh, rampantly commercially successful with that, that perhaps it's a sellout to it, but there was a longevity to it, you know, there was. Things just kept connecting with people. Um, you know, we had the Ivan novella for Best Contemporary Song for Design for Life, which is probably one of my, you know one of my most favourite moments in the band, you know, is Ivan Avello, your, favorite, your famous Welshman kind of thing. And then getting that for best contemporary song is one of the biggest things you can get. And we got it for Design for Life. Um, so it all added up in the end, you know. A lot of people say, oh, wasn't Britpop, like, you know, oh, everything got pigeonholed. Um, I always get very confused when people look back at it like that. I was like, well, there was just lots of really good guitar music around. And lots of, you know, lyrically, things were quite interesting, you know. And uh, and he just had true working-class expression with Oasis. Regardless what you think of Oasis, which mostly uh, I just think they're genius a lot of the times, it was working-class rage. Do you see that happening much now? In the charts, in the top ten, being number one, ruling the world? No, you don't. And South London does a good job of representing like working-class rage. But nowhere else at the moment, so you know, don't look back in it and think, oh, everything was pigeonholed. Don't be such a doofus,
0: you know. It was a good time. Many thanks to Manic Street Preacher's Singer and guitarist James Dean Bradfield. I'm Mark Goodyear. You've been listening to Classic Album Club.
1: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long